At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I had the joy of sitting down with Sarit Packer and Itamar Srulevich, the chefs and partners in both work and life, behind all of the Honey & Co. cookbooks, restaurants, and the podcast Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. Their newest book, Chasing Smoke, is what brought me back to grilling. After 13 years in New York City apartments, with only one of them about 10 years ago having access to a teeny balcony grill, I had sort of lost my way. I used to love testing early Food 52 recipes on that little grill. Everything from a fully grilled Caesar salad from Food 52 community member Amber of the blog Loves Food, Loves to Eat, to Stephen Reichland's take on Lomo al Trapo, a dish traditional to Colombia, in which a whole beef tenderloin is wrapped in salt and an old dish towel and thrown in the coals to gently cook to edge-to-edge medium-rare. But even when I moved back to California, I hesitated at buying a grill. Should I get charcoal or gas? What other gear was I going to need? How would I have time to wait for coals to fire up while also trailing a very cool but very unpredictable two-year-old? But Sarit and Itamar brought me back. Grilling does not have to be complicated. And you don't need a lot of stuff. Technically, you don't even need a grill, as every recipe in their book has instructions for using a grill pan, too. But maybe best of all, it reminded me of how extremely relaxing it can be to stand outside, maybe after the two-year-old is in bed, next to glowing coals and sizzling vegetables. And in this case, a pretty unexpected vegetable. This week's Genius Recipe stopped me in my tracks with its gorgeous photo in their book of a beautiful, almost alien-looking salad, these ombre purple petals of onion turned up like a flower facing the sun, ringed with char and filled with a sage, honey, and walnut dressing. And then the simplicity of the technique, in which you literally just make one slice through an unpeeled red onion and plunk it straight on the grill to char, clinched it. You can see the rather wacky video of me making it in our backyard on both Food52 and YouTube, and you can hear much more of the story here from Sarit and Itamar of growing up around the fire, then starting their grill-based restaurant Honey and Smoke, then traveling around the Middle East for inspiration and recipes for this book. But here they are first to tell us how they met at work and tried not to keep working together, but luckily for us, they epically failed at that. And by the way, they are calling in from their home in London, so you might hear the occasional city sound in the background. We met in a kitchen 17 years ago. Yeah, no, long, no. No, we met 19 years ago. Yeah. We've been married for 17 years. So and we, I know, it's a lot. 
<laughs> we started cooking um, in the same kitchen and it was, we weren't there for long together. <laughs> no, no. We were kind of like, we, we were not, a, it was kind of like a slow burn, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a slow burn. Yeah, because we, we became, we were kind of like quite friendly and we had like a group of friends in that kitchen. We kind of like hooked up one night and then we... And then everything kind of happened from there. So then we, we moved jobs quite quickly because we decided that it's not good for us to be in the same kitchen, I suppose. But then we ended up working together anyway. So I don't yeah. know. Like, <laughs> we've kind of been working with each other yeah, I didn't since. think about it. It's yeah. like pretty much every job we've worked at has been in the same company and now we own... The, the same, same company, company. so yeah. it's kind of uh, <laughs> it's kind of a strange kind of like backfired in an industrial scale. <laughs> we haven't managed to like uh, keep our distance uh, physically. Anyway, so that's what we did, and then we've kind of cooked, and then we moved to the UK together um, seventeen years ago, just after we were married. Two months after we married, we moved to to the UK, and uh, we started. Working here, and we kind of thought we would travel all around Europe. This is like the height of the European Union uh, days. <laughs> we were part of it, and we thought we'd just like do Italy and France and Spain, and we'd be chefs all over. And then we ended up just staying in the UK and cooking. And then we opened our business almost ten years ago. Yeah, it was our first restaurant. Well, it was a noble try <laughs> trying to stay away from each other. <laughs> God, it didn't work at yeah. all. Really, it should have, but it really didn't. <laughs> if you two could both talk about your own introduction to grilling, maybe when you were growing up and how that eventually led to Honey and Smoke. I think, you know, for both of us, we had this um, growing up, this big grilling sort of not tradition, but like so much part of life. Just part of the in, community. In Israel and, and the region, you know, we're thinking about whenever there'll be like three, four people together, there'd be, you know, a barbecue and it's always summer kind of, or you can always cook outdoors. You have like three weeks of winter. You know, we would go to the Palestinian restaurants and, you know, Jordanian restaurants and Lebanese restaurants in Israel uh, and have that food, you know, the, the big grills, the smoky kind of sweet, the salads, all of these things. This is kind of like, even now, I, when I say it, I'm kind of, kind of like, makes your, your mouth water. <laughs> You know, this for us was the, it was kind of like the benchmark of food. But it's not just restaurants, it's it's at home and it's in yeah. gardens and it's in outside and by the beach. And in the evening, it's always gathering, starting a fire and then cooking on a fire. And when you're young, it's quite rudimentary cooking. Some of it is literally like opening the tin and heating the tin itself in the fire, which I'm sure is not <laughs> very health and safety. But there was always like potatoes going into a fire. There's always onions going into a fire. There's always like sweet potatoes and that kind of used to be what we would eat when we were doing these kind of treks and trips and stuff like that and making like very basic bread on a fire, like a flatbread. Um, it was kind of the way to keep, I suppose, kids busy with really cheap ingredients of just kind of flour and water. So it's always been a part of growing up. And in, I think in a warm country, it's, it's even a bigger kind of part of growing up because yeah. you spend so much time outside. I think we both kind of worked our way backwards from that, you know, from loving this food and loving these experiences to kind of cooking it and sort of recreating it. And especially once we moved here to London, you know, we would seek out 
these things. We would go to the Middle Eastern restaurant or when we travel, we would find this. And it's always been the dream to, we always wanted a restaurant like this. And then we opened Honey and Smoke, which is a restaurant like this. And um, this is kind of like coming full circle, I think. Yeah, like re-exploring these flavors that we grew up on, maybe doing them slightly more restauranty kind of thing. So, my, not you know, too much. Not you know. To, yeah, with the idea of not to, you know not to go too fancy at all. It's not a fancy restaurant. It's a very kind of everyday, casual kind of restaurant. With trying to, you know, to to suit a sensibility that that works for now, I suppose as well, and um, just to impart because you know all this food, it's about like a lot of joy and it's about abundance and smell and color and to kind of try and bring that in a way to a restaurant was also quite a big part of honey and smoke i think yeah could you just share a little bit of of how you ended up writing this book it was kind of a little bit of a con (laughs) because we the book that we sold to our publishers was a restaurant book like a honey and smoke the restaurant that, that cookbook uh but then we thought does the world really need another restaurant book? And does and we, anyone actually use a restaurant cookbook yeah. versus like a home book that explains what's behind the restaurant, I think. And and also we wanted to explore a bit more. Yeah, so then, then we went back to the publisher and said, well, instead of doing a restaurant book, how about we sort of go to the source and go to these places where the inspiration for the restaurant came from and see what's happening there. And... You know, let's see what's happening on the ground. Let's discover new things. Let's see what the, these traditions are, what is still alive, what is not, what is relevant, you know, just to like mix things up. We also like we left the region like 17 years ago. Yeah. So... Or it was 15 when we started writing the book. But we wanted to like, even though we'd been back traveling, of course, in this book, even though we say it's about these kind of five trips, of course, it's like a culmination of many, many visits over the years and stuff like that. But we haven't actually lived in the Middle East for for many years. But we just felt that instead of just saying, this is how we do it, that's the restaurant, eat the food, we wanted to go back and see what is still being cooked, what's changed since we left, what's happening kind of in as many countries as we could fit in and just try and give a feel of what made us want to open the place in the first place. And I think the publishers were quite happy with that idea. Yeah, well, we said, um, instead of the book that we said we're going to do, we're going to travel to like 12 countries and potentially it's going to take us three, four years. And then they said, how about you go to five countries and hand it over next year? (laughs) (laughs) And we said, meh. And then we said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And then this is what (laughs) happened. But I I still think it's a fair compromise. Yeah, we couldn't have done more countries really without it becoming much, much uh, bigger, I suppose, as a project and much more ambitious as a project. We really just stuck to anything that was cooked over some form of like charcoal or flame or smoke. Did you learn anything about grilling that you didn't expect when you set out on your trip? Mm. Not so much didn't expect. It was really lovely to see how much it's used and, and what scale, because I think some of it is huge and we had not seen that kind of thing before i don't yeah, think like the scale is definitely the scale is you know like restaurants that the whole side of a kitchen of a really big kitchen yeah, is, so we is we think like you know we have quite a sophisticated kitchen onion smoke our grill is like what is it two meters and then you go to places that a grill would be 15 meters 
or 20 meters. And, and there'd be people standing and just like cooking with, with such accuracy that it, it blows your mind, I think. And in the hundreds of portions, yeah, it, you know. Yeah. And then on the other hand of the scale, you'd see, you know, people using an oil, an, an old oil tin as a grill and just in the side of the road and making delicious kind of bread and kofta snack for yeah, or, they're or, cheap and delicious. Or crazy wooden carts in Alexandria, which you it just defies explanation on how is it possible that a wooden cart has a barbecue on it and in it and how it doesn't catch fire <laughs> and they're cooking like so this is how we saw like the sweet potatoes were done on the beach or uh corn, even just roasting nuts. Um so it's yeah. these kind of carts on on the corniche, which is like the promenade in Alexandria, and uh, everyone's walking around. Sometimes just with like uh, kind of mellow charcoal that they're just heating tea on. You know, it's kind of used in small everyday to like massive, massive grills with feeding hundreds and hundreds of people, yeah. uh, with four or five chefs at a go. Like each one of them knowing exactly what they're doing and how to cook the meat perfectly. So it was quite nice to see this like massive variety. Yeah, a massive range. And, you know, we, we saw uh, bread cooked on pebbles. That was amazing. And mm. chicken cooked in the desert sand. And just like such a variety of, of techniques and such a variety of using, you know, heat and energy in an, a very efficient, a very smart way, because we don't think about it anymore. You know, if you need heat, if you need energy, you press a button. It's not, you know, it's not a big deal, but, you know, I'm thinking about, we, we cooked with the um, Bedouins in Wadi Rum outside of Petra, where there's really not much going by way of kind of natural resources. So heat is a really, you know, it's a big deal. Well, they have Wi-Fi. They do have Wi-Fi. <laughs> not much else, but Wi-Fi exists. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they make a little fire in a hole in the desert, you know, and lower the chicken and close it all. It comes out amazingly delicious, but it's also kind of so uh, smart yeah. and so efficient and so kind of... And you know they've been doing clean. it for generations like this, and they're just kind of following in this method of they know what to do, how to do it, and stuff like that. It's interesting to see, and it's interesting to see that this kind of, I suppose, man and fire continues. And woman. No, well, this is what I'm saying. Not so much, really. Like the women maybe at home are cooking or some of the kind of mostly we saw in, especially in restaurants and things like yeah. that. It's mostly men cooking yeah. in ways that they've learned for, for generations. And I think at home, the women are doing a lot of the cooking, but it's, it tends to be divided from uh, from the cooking on fire, which was kind of a bit my experience growing up, even though I, mean, I grew up in an extremely liberal family, I would say mostly like, my father or my brother lit the barbecue. Like, okay. what is really nice now is to see how many more women get involved. I don't know how it is in America, but especially in the UK, there's quite a lot of women that, like, like we, you know, like we do in Honey and Smoke, and I love cooking on fire now and stuff like that. And there's a lot of women doing it here now. But for me, I write this in the book at the end with like explaining how to start a fire and stuff like that. It, you don't have to. It doesn't have to come naturally to you. I really came to like cooking on fire just when we opened Honey and Smoke because until then. Mm. You know, like I say, my father or brother used to start the fires and even though I would make marinades or salads, I never really did that part. But when we opened Honey and Smoke, then I kind of got the, the fire the bug. bug, got the bug. Well, that was definitely one thing that stood out um, in reading your book for me. It had been a while since I had grilled and I, I think I had made it bigger in my mind that I needed to have 
a, a better setup. I needed to get all these tools to to be able to do it right and I and you know choose the right barbecue. Um, and I kept putting it off. And so reading in your book that you had done it even in an old wheelbarrow, of course, was yeah. uh, this light bulb moment that yeah. it it could be anything as long as it's heat safe. Yeah, it's like we always say we're the people who buy into all the gadgets. Like we buy all the kitchen gadgets, every thermometer, every kind of like strange shape, you know, whisk. We tend to fetishize the kit, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And you have to have this, and you have to have that. Uh, but actually, yeah, you, you don't. Like that yeah, fire. but you don't have to have anything. You know, mm-hmm. you just need to have kind of like some time. You'll manage. You know, the the kit is not the the kind of like the really really expensive fancy barbecue doesn't do anything essentially different than like an the ones you sink. buy at the gas station <laughs> or an old sink or whatever. It does the same thing. It just gives you a little bit of you know crutches, I guess. You mm-hmm. you have maybe a little bit more control of the temperature, but then. You can control the temperature anyway, you know, or it tells you the temperature, but you don't need to know the temperature. You have your senses. So mm-hmm. we're kind of like, it really is nice to have all the things and all the bits and all the fancy things, but also it's a luxury. You don't really need it. You're fine. Hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Sarit and Adamar as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit follow so you don't miss out on other stories like this one. And like our recent story with Emma LaPeruk, the mind behind Food52's award-winning Big Little Recipes column and video series about smart tricks for getting more great meals out of much smaller grocery lists, and what it was like to turn the column into a brand new cookbook. In the second half of this episode, we get to hear more from Sarit and Adamar about the only grill tools that you really need, and this week's stunning genius recipe. Meet you back here for that. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. What would you say are the essentials for someone who is just getting started grilling? What are the only things they absolutely need? Tongs. Tongs. You have to yeah, have tongs. Yeah. Tong- good tongs are... Because it's the best thing for like moving charcoal around or wood around in the actual fire, which you need to because that's how you monitor or, or maintain the heat or increase the heat or reduce the heat. Plus, it's the only way to lay stuff safely on the fire without burning your hands or anything like that and then removing it. So a good pair of long-handled metal tongs. That said, we don't have... At home, we don't, but we do in the restaurant have several. We need to bring some home. We should. Um, (laughs) Then what else is really important? Your actual barbecue, your actual grill setup, again, it can be something very, very basic or very, very complex, but even if you have something basic, you do need to have... 
enough space on it to move things around. So you will have like somewhere that's a little bit hotter or a little bit less and you need that room and you do need sort of air circulation of some sort. So yeah, oxygen is quite yeah. important, but that's not something you need to yeah. so like, even make sure you prepare. You just need to have oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's there. Um, you need patience because patience is like a must because you've got to allow time for the fire to come up and really burn out and then mellow down. Cause really you only want to be cooking at the stages where it's starting to mellow down. Uh, so you don't really want to be cooking on a flame at any stage. And then maybe like a good brush is good if you're brushing marinades on, but it's not an absolute yeah. necessity. There's a few things that are really good to have a good spatula in case something gets a bit kind of stuck. So you can go under and kind of release it carefully without losing all that char. Um, mm, yeah. You don't need much, no, really. No, you really don't need much. But that's the thing, you know, it's low-tech cooking. It's elemental. And, you know, you really want to, you don't need much. You know, even for a brush, we always use, like, when we grill, we only use, like, half an onion that we kind of, like, uh, put a fork into. And we use that to brush the grill or to dab marinades. It works. Yeah, but you can also use, like, a bunch of herbs and, like, dab that in oil and brush them over. It also helps kind of... Yeah. A flavor and a scent there's a lot of things you can use but you can make do with quite little kit you need an appetite <laughs> patience and appetite you don't buy those that onion trick that you're describing of cleaning the grill how does that tie into the onion of this recipe that we're talking about today it, it's kind of like a trick but it, like everywhere we went in the middle east everyone's doing it so the first thing you smell whenever you go to like a grill house or someone grilling the first thing you smell is that onion on the charcoal? It's Not such on the a charcoal, on the on grill, the, on the grill sorry, uh, and it's such a distinct smell even before you taste it. And then in every kebab shop, every grill house, and every you know, like you know, people grilling, there will always be kind of like you'll get your meat, and it'll either be threaded with onions and tomatoes, or you'll have like a se separate skewers of onions and tomatoes. And more often than not, this would be the tastiest thing. <laughs> in the meal because the onion on the grill gets such a delicious flavor, you know, that smoke, of course, but it also kind of like becomes very, very sweet. Yeah, it caramelizes all the sugars in it and all that thing that you kind of, in your head, think of onions being kind of a bit astringent or bitter. I'm not really sure how you would describe an onion flavor apart from it being oniony. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as you cook it or you grill it and that smoke goes in and grills and that's like it was saying, that smell of rubbing that onion on the grill and it just starts to char. This is for us the smell of, of starting the barbecue. Yeah. This is like the first thing. It's like the ceremony, you know. Mm. I definitely... Like remember as a kid handing my dad this like little dish of oil with the onion and the fork. And then I know that we do it before every kind of service. And it definitely seems to be something that is threaded throughout everyone that we met. This kind of smell and all of that makes us think of, uh, of onions and what to do with them and what happens with this onion once you've cleaned the grill. But also these skewers of onions is like a lot of stuff that we wanted to represent in this recipe, I suppose. So it's not... A traditional recipe per se, but it's very much a recipe that comes from all these sensibilities of what. Yeah, and then the like the little sweet and sour dressing with the herbs and the walnuts that worked yeah. really really well for us, and that's kind of very much uh, you know a southern thir turkey thing that they're very you know they're big on their sweet and sour the nuts things like that. Mm, yeah. So we just kind of like mixed it up a little bit, 
Now, what I love about this dish is that, you know, the, the onions kind of, they get really char on the cut side and then they kind of steam inside. So they're really, really sweet. They lose their kind of a sh uh, stringency and, and sharpness and they just become very, very sweet, but also still have their, the crunch, which mm -hmm. you wouldn't get if you roast them or boil them or something like that. It somehow mm -hmm. works. And then, you know, with the dressing on it, it can be like, you know, like we were saying earlier, onion is a vegetable. It's like usually you have it with other things or, you know, as a base to something, but it is something on its own. And it's nice to let it shine alone every once in a while. I wouldn't be that surprised if I ate a whole onion, but seeing my husband eat a whole onion was also um, a huge endorsement because I don't think he ever would have thought of onions as a vegetable. Everything else feels secondary because they're so flavorful. There's lots of recipes for vegetables and fruits and stuff like that in the book, but we like when we do use one to, to give it some space and to actually let all the kind of characteristics of the certain thing come out. So whether some of it is char and some of it is soft and some of it is smoky and sweet and stuff like that, there's like a lot of elements. Hopefully each bite gives you a bit of all of those things, like a bit of the sweetness and a bit of the smoke and a bit of the kind of a slight bit of crunch on the kind of under bit plus quite a bit of crunch from the dressings it's like really important to give all your senses like a little party when you're eating something so that you kind of enjoy it all and if you're out by the grill then you're also getting the smell of the smoke yeah. the the sight of the the crackling fire and the sound of the crack like all of those senses are activated too at the same time as the yeah. Yeah. This, this is what onion is doing other things. It is, but this is what's so special about cooking over fire is that it's not just about the food that comes off. It's about everything. It's like a ceremony. It's a it's a time to enjoy. It's looking at stuff and reconnecting a bit to how we cook and and how we used to cook for generations and all this kind of desensitized stuff of using inductions and electrics and you know all of this stuff where or pots that are wonder pots that you just put everything in and close it and you don't see it until it's cooked you know it's like the exact opposite cooking on fire it's like re re-enjoying everything to do with it so that you as you're smelling it you you get hungry and you enjoy it and you so you see the color changing and you have a few things going but you also kind of take your time and people hopefully you you know enjoy with you and stuff like that you kind of take it easy and you have a drink such a good point and and also it's one of the things that makes this recipe such an approachable one. Um, even if you don't feel super confident with your grilling abilities, the fact that you just literally cut it in half and let it sit there. Yeah. Um, you don't need much do you have any... <laughs> no, It's great. It the perfect re-entry for me. Do you have any tips for what to look for in the onion to know that char is right? Yeah. Um, how cooked through it is, is right? I think it's, it's really important to leave the skin on because it gives it like a little um, jacket, yeah, protective like a jacket, protection. A, a little steamy protection jacket, uh, and to leave the core in so that it stays intact. Because what you don't want to do is peel it and remove the core and then char it because it will fall apart and you won't get a, a really good kind of even thing. And you want to choose kind of good medium-sized onions, I suppose like fist-sized kind of onions, not mm -hmm. too big, so there's not too much water there, uh, but they have like a nice intense flavor. And actually... White onions work as well as red ones here. Red ones are just prettier. Yeah. Uh, but it does work really, really well with white ones. But the red ones are just so, so much prettier. And then to kind of not move it at all for the at least those first 10 minutes, which is quite 
like hard for us to do. I think mentally we always want to like touch stuff, but it's what kind you, of check the yeah, and... yeah, we need to kind of not at least for 10 minutes, not touch it so that it really creates that crust. And also it will come off the, the, the grill, the, grill, yeah, the griddle much stay. easier. Yeah. And even if you think, oh yeah, that's way too much color. That's so bad. Actually, when you think about it, the char side is so little when you eat it because you break it down into petals and then it's just kind of like the rim of the petal. Once you've given it that really nice dark face, you just flip it over for up to five minutes just to soften it a bit more. So it's not, because uh, really you want to lose all that kind of uh, sharpness of yeah. the onion. So it needs to cook and you will see kind of little bubbles or steam coming out. And that's really all there is to it. It is about burning and it's about patience and it's about giving it the time to really develop all those flavors, to really caramelize. And then you get an amazing dish from it. But it's not about putting it, moving it, flipping it, changing it, you know, tossing it, all these kind of things. It's the exact opposite of all this like hyperattention food. And now here are some of our listeners' favorite ways to cook over the fire. Hi, this is Tom Hirschfeld calling from Indiana, a place where we barbecue anything. I like to barbecue meatloaf, or as I call it, hillbilly prime rib. I take it and wrap it in bacon and then uh, put it on a medium hot fire with some mesquite and I dapple it with a nice Kansas City barbecue sauce, something a little bit sweet. Let the edges of that bacon get nice and crunchy and crispy and sugary. And then, you know, you got that nice comforting interior of the meatloaf. It's definitely a recipe built for comfort, not for speed, and it's delicious. Hey, this is Nick from Bread, Salt, and Hearth. Nothing compares to the humble grilled pepper in a punchy dressing of equal parts of extra virgin olive oil and red wine vinegar with salt, black pepper, and enough thinly sliced fresh garlic to ward off all of the vampires, up to a clove per pepper depending on their size. I throw whole cubanelles or Italian frying peppers onto a grill over medium hot coals, turning consistently until they're a bit charred and have just collapsed in on themselves. They get tossed in the dressing hot off the grill and covered with foil while I finish preparing dinner, and they are a hit every single time. Thanks for listening. And my thanks to Sarit Packer and Itamars Rulevich, the chefs and partners behind London's Honey & Co. Restaurants Cookbooks and the podcast Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. Their new book is called Chasing Smoke. Our show is put together by Coral Lee, Amy Schuster, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a genius recipe for me to run with in my recently rekindled relationship with the grill, I would always love to hear from you at genius at food52.com. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes and the Food 52 Podcast Network, the very best thing that you can do to support us and help other people find the show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review or send this episode to someone who needs a boost of confidence to become the true grill freak that they were meant to be. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week.